The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. So this is not actually Sam Doran. This is Matt Murphy filling in for Sam, who is a little under the weather uh, on this Friday, Valentine's Day. So, uh, Sam, feel better. But, you know, as they say, the show must go on. So I am joined uh, today, as always, by Chris Lesinski, Colin Young, and Katie Lannon, the fabulous Statehouse News Service reporting team. And we have plenty to talk about on this Friday, ahead of a long weekend where I think we're all a little bit eager to uh, get out of here and enjoy the weekend. Probably no one more so than Chris, who was here late last night with the Senate as they debated a fairly comprehensive mental health care bill. Chris, why don't you start us off and uh, tell us a little bit about what this bill did? This is a pretty wide-ranging bill with a whole bunch of different features, all united under a pretty common theme of trying to achieve parity in mental health care that has been a law on the state books since 2000 and has been federal law since 2008. Uh, Physical and mental health care are supposed to be the same. You're supposed to have the same access to both through your health care insurance. But uh, a lot of lawmakers and supporters say that that has never really been fulfilled because of the way those laws were written. So uh, a few things this bill does is grants the Division of Insurance new enforcement powers that allows them to impose penalties on insurers who throw unnecessary obstacles in the way of patients seeking mental health care treatment. It tries to set a new rate floor to ensure that uh, providers are being properly reimbursed and making services available. It calls for exploring how to expand the workforce and a uh, whole range of other features. Yeah, so you know, one thing that's kind of jumped out to me is we've heard the Senate talk about this, in particular Senate President Karen Spilka and and also Senator Julian Sear who helped write this is uh, just how personal this bill seems to the leadership in the Senate. What was the tenor and tone of the debate last night as you as you listened to several hours? Yeah, personal is a good way to put it. We heard several lawmakers sharing their own struggles with mental health issues uh, in their families or personally. Uh, Julian Sear, the the lead sponsor of this legislation, spoke about his own battle with depression and anxiety and accepting his identity as a gay man and the the challenges that that posed for him that he was able to overcome through therapy, but very pointedly said that even now as a state senator, he struggles to get insurance coverage for outpatient treatment. And if he, the chair of the Joint Committee on Mental Health can't navigate this system. How is everyone else in the state supposed to navigate this? Um, A big theme that a lot of lawmakers pushed in talking about this so personally was the idea of stigma and the fact that many people don't seek treatment that they need because mental health issues are stigmatized in uh, everywhere and they feel worried about what others will think of them for seeking that kind of treatment. Um, we don't usually see this much personal story sharing in de- dense policy debates, but the goal there was really to try and break down uh, that wall of of judgment that has circulated around this issue for some time. Yeah, and President Spilka obviously has talked about her own family's struggles with her father's uh, mental health after World War II and the inability of her and her mother to get her father to seek help. And uh, she said she's been you know, working with Secretary Sutters in the Baker administration on a, a stigma awareness uh, campaign that could launch this spring. And 
Uh, do you think that's why we saw a somewhat unusual rally ahead of or actually in the middle of this debate? They paused for a massive rally on the staircase. I was wondering what you guys all thought about the decision to hold such a big rally on a bill that I think we all probably could have predicted was going to pass unanimously. Yeah, I think that really highlights that this is a a marquee issue for President Spilka. You know, Matt, like you said, she's talked about this and her her family's relationship with mental health and mental health treatment for a while. It was in her inaugural speech. Um, and it's it's a theme we hear the, the Senate hit on a lot. Mental health parity, reducing stigma. These conversations came up last year, I believe it was, when they were taking action around kind of the ghost networks of providers um, these are these are things that that seem to really be a, an undercurrent of what what the Senate's been looking at this session and a, and a priority of the president. And I think that that rally was a really just a, a way to highlight that. All right, Chris, well, this did pass unanimously with the even small number of Republicans supporting this bill. But did they make any changes on the floor? Yeah, a few changes we saw on the floor, some quite significantly. Uh, One amendment originally offered, I think, by Senator Joan Lovely of Salem uh, imposes, it it calls for the state to impose new regulations capping how long uh, minors, uh, anyone under the age of 21, can be held in an emergency department pending a psychiatric inpatient bed. So, you know, kids and teenagers who go to the emergency room having a mental health crisis need to get into, you know, a serious program sometimes are held for up to 18 days, we heard from Senator Eric Lesser citing someone in his district just waiting in the emergency room for weeks on end to get into that program. This amendment would cap that at 48 hours, need to be processed, put into treatment within two days, and not held for these long stretches of time. Uh, Another one that they did not do, a a big idea that came from uh, Bruce Tarr, the minority leader who backed the underlying bill, would have set a new requirement that any insurer who wants to acquire his or her license, I'm sorry, not any insurer, that would have set a new requirement that any provider trying to acquire his or her license in Massachusetts would need to accept one form of commercial insurance or mass health. Uh, Several different senators said during debate that something like 50% of mental health practitioners in the state don't accept any insurance at all because the rates that they get reimbursed are so low or the paperwork is so burdensome. This was an attempt to kind of force those providers to accept this and get more patients actually able to access these services. But the Senate ultimately decided that was too much to do at this point and sent it over to a study instead. Interesting. Democrats, too. It's not exactly a, uh, an idea you would think you would hear from a Republican to force uh, acceptance of an insurance. But, uh, Colin, what do you think? We now have the Senate passing uh, a major pharmaceutical drug pricing bill, a sweeping mental health access bill. President Spilka says she's got a third more general health care bill coming up. Uh, none of these have come up in the House yet after we saw uh, health care collapse as an issue at the end of last session. Uh, chances anything gets done this session? I mean, I think the fact that the Senate is breaking it up uh, makes the chances of something getting done greater because I, I could see the House maybe taking up uh, some of the pieces that the Senate has um, has already passed. Uh, and I think that stems from some of the complaints that I've heard from senators and others about that uh, last session's health care bill. When it passed through the Senate, there was a feeling that uh, there was just sort of too much tacked on to that bill um, and that it got a little bit unruly and out of hand and that complicated matters trying to go negotiate a compromise bill with the House. 
So I think that's part of why the Senate decided to split them up. And um, the House, we haven't seen any real traction over in the House on a health care bill yet this session. Uh, but I think the fact that the Senate broke it up means that uh, we might see something from the House, if not a giant comprehensive bill like last time. All right. Well, and we, we should also just note that kind of complicating what the House will do on health care is they still don't have a new permanent health care financing committee chair following the departure of uh, Jen Benson to take over the Alliance for Business Leadership. Excellent point. And we will talk about that a, a little bit later in the show. Uh, but for now, I think we're going to stick with uh, Colin to uh, talk about a little wind. Wind. It was a windy week. It was a windy week, and it's quite cold out there. It, it actually is. feels like February today. We've been pretty lucky with the winter. <laughs> Luckier, certainly, than Vineyard Wind has been in getting uh, the final permit they need from the Trump administration to start building what uh, Massachusetts had hoped would be the first-in-the-nation commercial-scale wind farm. But we did hear a bit more this week. Tell us where we stand. Yeah, we got news this week. Um Maybe not great news, especially if you're Vineyard Wind, um, but news all the same, which was that the U.S., uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, announced t uh, this week that th its ongoing review of the offshore wind industry up and down the East Coast and specifically uh, its work on a final environmental impact statement for the Vineyard Wind Project won't be complete until December of this year. Uh, which Vineyard Wind then came out and said that uh, if that's the case, its wind farm project, 84 turbine wind farm project, won't be able to be operational in 2022 uh, as the company expected, as the state expected, as utilities expected. Yeah, that seems like a pretty big blow. I, you know, it, I can't help but think about Cape Wind when we talk about these projects and uh, the optimism uh, that Cape Wind was going to be the state's first foray into this, you know, renewable energy uh, frontier, uh, developing cleaner sources of, of energy, and uh, only to see that project get stalled and stalled and eventually yeah. die. Is there a concern that we're experiencing deja vu here? I think that the, there's definitely that perception, right, that oh, here's another wind project that's getting stalled, and who knows if it'll ever happen. But I think there's some real key differences between the Cape Wind situation and what's happening now with Vineyard Wind. Uh, first of all, the Cape Wind project ran into a lot of issues with its local and state permitting. That's not the case with Vineyard Wind. They're through that process. They're good to go uh, on those fronts, generally speaking, the, the, the big permits. There's still um, a few other issues outstanding. But not to the same level that complicated Cape Wind. Um, and with Cape Wind, there were some problems with that particular project that uh, led to it being stalled. With Vineyard Wind, um, this federal government review isn't so much about the details of the Vineyard Wind project itself as it is about the uh, growing offshore wind industry generally. So the feds said back in August, basically, we need to put a pause on the offshore wind industry. It's growing faster than we can um, than we can handle. We want to get our arms wrapped around it. So just to put some numbers on that, when Vineyard Wind submitted uh, its applications and, and started going through the federal permitting process, uh, that 800 megawatt project was the entirety of the pipeline for offshore wind projects in the United States. It was the only one. It was the first, the only. And now 
there's more than 22,000 megawatts of offshore wind in the pipeline. So that industry has really exploded in the last couple of years. So the Fed's deciding to take a longer review here is really more about the industry than it is about the specific vineyard wind project. Katie, what do you think? Uh, we've covered a bit of the Senate in particular, their uh, push on renewable energy, in particular the 2050 net zero goal that's been embraced by both the Senate, Speaker uh, DeLeo, and the governor. Does the delay of wind portend badly for the state's ability to uh, achieve a goal like that, or, or how are they going to factor this in? That, that is a good question, and it's one policymakers are, are going to need to figure out. We've heard as, you know, whenever carbon emissions come up, the concept of reducing greenhouse gas pollution, one of the things people say almost in the next breath is we need to speed up our transition to renewables. We need to be moving away from fossil fuels and into these cleaner sources. And that, that call is kind of amplifying, and it's an interesting time for a slowdown on that front. It's, um, it's definitely going to create challenges there if you know if we can't get wind power online offshore wind power as soon as it's expected or had been anticipated and you know you might see the the focus kind of turn more towards solar or energy storage or some of those other new technologies that are out there but it's definitely uh it could prevent it could present a challenge to that 2050 goal if if it gets delayed more or pushed back beyond what people are talking about. Yeah, I just can't help but think back to right after the governor's State of the State speech. He had, I think he had that budget press conference and was talking about and he was rattling off the numbers of just how much wind power the state was expecting to produce. And it would push them so much closer to that goal of net zero by 2050. Without it, you're going to have to fill in the gaps. I think the governor had said in his State of the uh, Commonwealth address that between the two offshore wind projects that have been procured and the hydro project, because remember the 2016 clean energy law was offshore wind and hydro, uh, I think he said those three projects, if they all come to fruition, would meet about a third of the state's electricity demand. But all three of those projects have have had uh, have run into delays in one form or another. Vineyard wind is delayed by this federal uh, review process. Mayflower Wind, the second wind farm project, is further uh, behind, but is also held up in this federal review. And the um, uh, plan to get uh, Canadian hydropower to Massachusetts, uh, you know, the state has already had to shift gears from the Northern Pass project through New Hampshire to the New England Clean Energy Connect project through Maine. And that project also um, has been bumping up against some hurdles. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought up Mayflower Wind because it wasn't all bad news for offshore wind power this week. Uh, we did finally get to see uh, the contracts that Mayflower Wind, the state's second major offshore wind procurement, uh, deals that they reached with state utilities. Colin, tell us about that contract. Yeah, so this was the good news this week, and it was that you know if this wind, if these wind projects can come to fruition, there do seem to be real benefits to not only the environment, but ratepayers in Massachusetts. So Mayflower Wind's uh, power purchase agreements with the uh, state utilities uh, lay out the price of the electricity that they're going to generate. And Mayflower Wind came in at a price of 5.8 cents per kilowatt hour. And to put some uh, context around that, the price of Vineyard Wind's power is expected to be 6.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, the average right now, the average cost of electricity for a residential consumer 
in Massachusetts is 21.74 cents per kilowatt hour. So certainly would, there would be some savings for ratepayers. The state says it uh, could be almost 2% savings off of, uh, electric bills. And this was after the legislature changed a law that would have even required the uh, second and subsequent wind procurements to beat the price of the previous projects, right? Yeah, that's right. So the 2016 clean energy law put in place the requirement that uh, whatever price the first offshore wind procurement comes in at, the second one has to be cheaper than that. Uh, and last summer, there was some legislative wrangling around that, and ultimately, the uh, that requirement was, was lifted so that this second procurement uh, legally did not have to be cheaper than the first, but yet it still came in cheaper than the Mayflower Wind uh, uh, Project, I'm sorry, than the Vineyard Wind Project. The folks at Mayflower Wind had promised also that this project that the Massachusetts Utilities selected would be the lowest cost offshore wind energy ever in the United States. And at 5.8 cents, it, it, it definitely is. Um, there's a lot of thought that actually lifting that requirement that the price be lower, um, getting rid of that requirement actually helped ensure that the price was lower. Because if you had had that legal cap in place or that, that legal requirement in place, um, it could have uh, uh, scared some companies away from bidding on this project in Massachusetts. Uh, but instead, without that requirement, the state got 28 proposals from three different bidders for various configurations and sizes of wind farms. Um, and there's a, a thought that that competition is what led the is what drove the price down and got it under the vineyard wind uh, price. So in in sort of a um, slightly backwards way, uh, removing that requirement may have actually uh, forced the price lower. Interesting. Well, state energy officials weren't the only ones counting on some uh, good, strong winds blowing. Uh, Deval Patrick, our former governor, was hoping to get some wind at his back coming out of the New Hampshire primaries, but he said that uh, he did not feel the practical wind that he needed to carry him into Nevada and South Carolina. So, Katie, as our uh, resident native New Hampshireite, uh, tell us how Massachusetts uh, politicians fared in uh, the first in the nation primary on Tuesday. I believe the technical term there is not great. It yeah. was not a good day for Massachusetts. It was not. Elizabeth Warren, uh, certainly one of the leading contenders for the nomination, hoping to get a big bounce out of New Hampshire. She ended up in fourth place behind Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who had a big rise. Were you surprised to see Warren struggle in her neighboring state and your home state? Am I from New Hampshire? Gosh, that that seems to have been mentioned a couple times here. Um, <laughs> it it was interesting. She definitely underperformed. Um, New Hampshire is a hard state to kind of handicap the way you know maybe the you see the polls out of Iowa and you see in New Hampshire a lot fewer people kind of willing to share their opinions of how they're going to vote ahead of time. You know that kind of crusty New England. It's none of your business attitude. Um, but it is interesting, you know, p politicians from Massachusetts of often have better name recognition in New Hampshire. They're familiar with them. You're, you're watching the Boston news channels there, but that doesn't necessarily and automatically translate into popularity, especially when you've got other people on the ballot who have, you know, high name recognition as well. We've, um, we've seen both Elizabeth Warren and Deval Patrick kind of 
come out of New Hampshire with some taking some wax at the media and the way their campaign has been covered, um, whether that's part of it or whether it's something else. I mean, I guess we'll we'll see kind of moving forward. Yeah, Deval Patrick uh, frustrated clearly at the uh, what he described as the media narrative that he had gotten into the race too late and that sort of foreclosed his opportunity. But uh, in the end, as I kind of alluded, uh, the former governor got less than one percent of the vote. And uh, the next day ended his presidential campaign. But uh, let's take it back now. Uh, you know, while New Hampshireites were going to the polls and voting uh, back on more familiar territory here, it was um, actually Chris working the board here did a story on paper pulling day. And uh, it was the first day for nomination papers to be taken out from the Secretary of State's office on Tuesday. And we saw a, a flood of people pulling papers, looking to run, and some people this week deciding that they were not going to be pulling papers, including the aforementioned Dan Cullinane, the vice chair of the Healthcare Financing Committee, who's deciding to uh, call it quits. What do we make of Dan deciding not to seek reelection? He's a young state rep from Dorchester. Well, in his uh, announcement that he wouldn't be seeking re-election, he did uh, point out that he and his wife have, have welcomed two young kids to their family in the last, uh, I think, two or three years. I think he, he, a um, two-year-old son and an eight-month-old daughter uh, that he has. So uh, certainly you can understand from a personal standpoint why he might decide this is a good time to, to step back. Uh, but in looking at some of his um, election results in the last couple of cycles, one thing that I noticed was that he, Dan Cullinane, has had a, a primary challenger every single time that he's run. He, he first uh, won election through a special election where there was a, a Democratic contest. Um, he had a general election opponent. He's had a Democratic uh, challenger uh, in each of his uh, uh, re-election campaigns. Uh, so I, and I know uh, the candidate that he topped two years ago has already announced that he would be seeking the seat yet again. So I think uh, some of the electoral factors may have also come into play with that decision. Uh, but certainly when you put them all together, you, know, you can understand why someone would make that decision. I, I, an interesting point in that one, too, that I think I saw um, long-distance Massachusetts politics reporter Dave Bernstein make on Twitter is the cost of living in the Boston area being what it is. Um, he, he made a point of like, it's got to be tough to raise a family on a vice chair's salary. And I know um, making, you know, comments about political, what politicians earn aren't usually ways to uh, win hearts and minds there. A lot of a lot of voters uh, and, you know, constituents earn much less than their elected officials do. But that might be a consideration. You know, it is he hasn't been promoted to the open chairmanship on his committee. Vice chairs don't make as much as they used to. Uh under the new system. That's true. So uh, we'll probably be down at least one Dan in the House uh, next session. Uh, there's a good chance, perhaps, that another person of color could uh, come out of that district. How many, how many Dans will be in the, just the Boston delegation now? Dan Hunt, Dan Ryan, no more Dan Cullinane. So but. I counted this out um, in a real productive use of time the other day, assuming all the remaining Dans are reelected and no other new Dans are elected. There will be five. Um, five Dans. Five Dans uh, down, projected down from six with Dan Cullinane. We've also, um, I believe there are six Pauls. We're down a Paul in the house with uh, Melrose Mayor Paul Brodeur no longer being a, a rep. 
the most popular name in the house is David. There are nine. There are eight Davids. News you can use there, folks. <laughs> News you can use. This is why you listen. Yeah, so what do we think? We talked about the mental health care bill. Dan Cullinane, obviously the vice chair in the House, uh, House uh, said to be working on a big health care bill. Uh, what do we think DeLeo does there? Has anyone heard anything? It's even, they've been playing this one pretty close to the vest, it feels like. Even on the, the what they're going to do with the governor's health care bill, the House hasn't really tipped their hand there. Um, you know, we had at the, the Health Policy Commission cost trends hearings in October, President Spilko is pretty quick to say she thinks she'll do a, a few different health care bills, and we've seen that materialize. And Speaker DeLeo has said that they'd do a hearing on the governor's bill probably sometime in January, and that's been what mat- what materialized, and he didn't have much to say beyond that, and he still hasn't really had much to say. Yeah, feels like another job for Ron Mariano. But uh, thanks, guys, for all your insight and analysis. Also this week, you know, we had Attorney General Maura Healey uh, coming forward after a more than a year-long investigation to Juul, announcing that she was suing uh, the vaping manufacturer for uh, illegally, in her estimation, marketing uh, tobacco products to minors. Uh, we also heard on a uh, controversial driver's license bill for undocumented immigrants, Senator Diana DiZoglio, uh, perhaps giving a glimpse of what this fight is going to be looking like as she had to defend herself from Republican attacks for changing uh, what was her 2014 position against that bill. And uh, looking ahead, uh, I know I am looking forward to the first debate next week between Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy. Uh, should be an interesting matchup and give us uh, maybe a taste of what this campaign in 2020 is going to look and feel like. But uh, for now, happy Valentine's Day. Any plans, anybody? No. <laughs> no, we're a sad group of people. <laughs> going to eat some candy. All right, well, have a good weekend. (laughs) Sitting in for Sam Doran, I'm Matt Murphy. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.